Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. And this is Jonathan. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of not knowing when to stop and starting Season 12. Yes. Let's move on to the topic. Yes. <laughs> we have a topic. Now, we did this, I think we did this last year where we said, you guys think we're just going to talk about ourselves, but we actually have a topic. And we do. What is the topic, Jonathan? The topic for today is the Bureau in the 1920s. Right. See, everybody who plays Bureau 13 plays it in the near future, right? <laughs> well, we. Yeah, I play. Uh, <laughs> Rich did. Rich did do the Bureau Thirteen Black Powder to show the beginning days of the Bureau, and I've run a campaign in that time. So, but but the the near future is the default setting for Bureau mm-hmm. Thirteen. Yes, you know, and a lot of people like it because it has all the uh, you know cool James Bond type gadgetry. The near future, you know, can have stuff that's a little bit advanced on. You know, and I, I won't. I won't ask you to do the the whole technology level thing that you, you you like to do. But the history of the bureau didn't start there, as as Trav said. You know, when uh, Trav, when did the bureau start? Uh during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln found out that the Confederate States were using supernatural elements to try to win the war, so he created the Thirteenth Bureau of the United States Department of Justice, aka Bureau Thirteen. Right. Which, ironically, was almost immediately disavowed because Grant said, oh, "I'm not paying for that." <laughs> <laughs> you know, the question of, uh, of of funding for the bureau uh, was a really big issue until they basically brought on some uh, alchemists who could start who started turning lead and other things into gold, and now and then the bureau became basically self funding after that. I happen to have. And I told you I would bring these up, the, the Bureau 13 OGL PDF and the uh, Black Powder. Bureau, act, actu- okay, actually the Bureau got a lot of funding and they were just running on their own with their own, uh, as Nick Fury said, their own wits and their wills and whatever guns and stuff they could pick up. In 1868, so this is... Let's see, about 1863. So about five years into the Bureau, the Bureau found a colony of gnomes out in California, and they wanted protection. Uh, Protecting them ensures a yearly payment in gold for the next century. So basically, these gnomes gave the Bureau gold. So they were well-funded until the late 60s. Right before the massacre of 77. Yeah, so like within like, you know, eight, nine years before the massacre, the Bureau had funding from these gnomes. And of course, 
I use the convention that gnomes are kind of tinkerers and all that. So, you know, I'm sure the gnomes donated some technical knowledge and some magical knowledge to, well, probably more technical knowledge. Oh, gee, we can make this gun better here. It can shoot seven bolts instead of six. And you're like, thank you. But <laughs> Bruce did mention an alchemist. That happened in 1889 when Lafayette C. Baker, the head of the Euro, his stand against magic changed with the times. The good witch, Samantha Poole, and alchemist Jonas Mitchell joined in 1889. So this was about 25 years after the Bureau started. Baker realized we're getting our butts handed to us by these creatures because at the most we might have banes. Oh, look, we're making cold iron bullets. Okay, that takes out fate. Okay, we have silver bullets. Okay, those take out werewolves and vampires. But we still have spellcasters like the Wind... Uh, Wind Willow Coven. Thank you. Yeah, what he said. And so in 1889, Lafayette C. Baker hired on a witch and an alchemist. And that's when the Bureau got into using magic and alchemy to basically... What, what would be the term I'm looking for here? Level the playing field. So they were getting well funded and they used magic. You know, by the by, by 1890, they had some cash reserves from the gnomes, and they had the beginnings of magical training and power. And yeah, it it Let's see, I'm looking here, what else, 1889. Yeah, by 1899, they already destroyed the third Windwillow Coven. Well, if anything, the Windwillow <laughs> Coven are persistent. Well, they're families, so, yeah. you know, you, what you're doing is you're lopping off the head, but... You're basically wiping out a generation of Windwillow exactly. witches. the next yeah. generation comes up and tries to take over again, so yeah. Yeah. It does that There's a lot. always more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So, but uh, but what I'm trying to uh, to get to is the fact that that uh, you know one of the big things that made a difference in the in the modern version was the inclusion of Ray Robertson, who was the technological genius that was behind a lot of the bureau's crazy devices that they they have to, as Trav said, to level the playing field. If we go back to the 1920s. We don't have that. So yeah. it's a lot of people, uh, I mean, Richard never really, you know, he, he did the black powder supplement, which talked about some of the technology that was available then. Okay. And we've talked about maybe, you know, and, and on some of the, we have done the uh, episodes on the 50s and the 70s and things like that. But we, you know, we talked about doing, you know, the 20s and the 40s, but we never actually did that. You know, that was something that Richard talked about get, uh, putting a supplement out on, but it never came to fruition yeah. because he just ran out of time. Uh, so we, so we, we've been saying for now over a year that we need to do an episode on uh, b playing Bureau 13 in the 20s. So uh, now, uh, Jonathan... Is there another role-playing game set in the 20s that involves the supernatural? The first one that comes to mind is Call of Cthulhu. Right. 
Yes. So, and that's a that's a pretty good reference. I mean, you know, uh, it's not the same. Okay. Uh, how how it? Yeah. How would you differentiate the bureau versus uh, the various people in Call of Cthulhu? Well, typically, the the investigators in Call of Cthulhu are not organized by any means. Uh, they're just random people, some skilled, maybe some not so skilled, who happen to discover the existence of this these other dark side to reality, the existence of these ancient alien gods. And usually in a, in a Call of Cthulhu campaign, your, your character's life expectancy is low. Right. The game has a built-in um, character, character lifespan. Uh, called sanity. Yeah. 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 Like, you're going to die or go crazy or both. Yeah. There's only one way to uh to survive to possibly survive a Call of Cthulhu campaign. Burn every book you encounter. Burn all the books. It's to be blind. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay, I can see that, yeah. yeah. If you are blind, you don't see the 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 mind, you know, blowing aberrations. You don't read the the uh uh the cursed tomes, and most people don't think you're dangerous enough to kill you, like the cultists will kill you. Okay, so so but they're, they're not a blind character is not terribly fun to play. So it's it's uh uh, what I'm just saying is that if you wanted to play a character with the sole purpose of surviving the campaign, that would be the one I would pick. Uh, but uh, yeah, every uh, I would say one of the things that a truism of Call Cthulhu campaign is is that there's always one sage-like person, you know, who who spent most of their life, you know, looking at old tomes, so and and possibly even learning some of these ancient languages that pop up. You know, as people, you know, as the various cultists and such try to reach across the dimensions and contact these otherworldly beings for the purpose of getting power and opening up doorways to bring them through and destroy uh, the earth. That's one big difference. But you're right. I mean, usually it's like that one person, maybe there's an investigative reporter who just, ha- you know, or, or uh, and, uh, and everybody else is just randomly just pulled in. Either they're related to one of those two characters. Maybe a private eye or a detective. Well, but the private eyes and detectives in the 20s, you know, they didn't usually get hired for this kind of work. So... No, no. It was, it was I'd say, it, was, it would have been rare, but if, depending on the, on the, the, the game master, you could have a PI get hired for one job that seems unrelated, and then it just happens to lead him into this world of yeah. Your my du- my teenage daughter disappeared. I'll pay you money to mm-hmm. find her, and you end up getting caught up in this. Yeah, and, and a lot of times you would get a patron. You know, you'd save somebody from a cult, and that person, that family, would become your patron and, and basically bankroll your continuing adventures as you slowly unraveled more and more of the of 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 the conspiracy that is Call of Cthulhu. Okay. Much different from Bureau 13. Bureau 13, how would you characterize that, Trav? 
You are backed by a secret government agency to fight the supernatural and make sure that John and Jane Q public never find out it exists. If they see it, you come up with a convenient excuse to explain it away. They were filming a movie. It was a CGI or it was a, a, an FX guy with a with an animatronic robot. Anything to make sure that, and I'm going to use the term from a previous election, Joe the Plumber does not realize that the supernatural actually exists. It's all fake and you news. Have, yeah. Uh, <laughs> hate the term, but it works. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, basically the Bureau acts just like uh, our commander-in-chief. <laughs> Every time someone says, but what about that? Didn't happen. It's all fake news. I don't recall that. No, no. That happened? Wait, I didn't say that. Yeah. No, but, but Call of Cthulhu, yeah, you're right. It's often, well, in both ways, kind of, especially post-Basker 77, it is ordinary people dragged into extraordinary circumstances. But at least with the Bureau, you get the option of banger main training. Call of Cthulhu, it's often on-the-job training, and you don't survive it 99% of the time. Right. Well, but if you're playing Bureau 13 back in the 20s, is it? Are, are do they have training bases back then? No, 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 no. Ooh, it was no. all on the job training. So it was you, the same then, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but still, you were better. You at least were better equipped with Bureau Thirteen than you were with Call of Cthulhu. Call of Cthulhu, you might have had a cross and a gun. Yeah, you, uh, you had at least the comfort of knowing there was some agency backing you up to some yes. extent. Yeah. You know, and and so th there was that. You you had, it, was, it was might have been a moral support, you know, but it was it was there, you know, and you and you, there were people you could talk to that would actually agree with you that something was going on. So yeah, w there were two main bases uh, back in those days. Uh, there was because uh, we know that from the uh, black powder. There was the Carson City uh, base, and there was the one in Washington D.C. Yeah, there was a New Orleans yeah. one, but after a while it went, it kind of went under, so they just used Cart the Nevada and the DC one. Yeah. I do remember there was a New Orleans one for a while. So uh but anyways, uh now, you know, it's our our listeners are probably going 1920s. I mean, for most of us, it's like, okay, um I read uh this book. Uh, about this rich guy who, who died and they made me read it in high school and it took place in the 20s. Uh, and, uh, and there was a, you know, a, a big economic boom, uh, a, a, a bust. And it was right after World War One, and everybody was partying a lot. And there were these people called flappers. Okay, that's what most people, when they think of the 20s, that's all they get out of it. Okay. Oh, and moonshining. Let's not forget about moonshining. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of 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 uh, that was that was the time of um, prohibition. Prohibition yeah. and, and that. Yeah. You know, where where America decided to open its doors to crime <laughs> because they gave them a big money uh, a big money uh, uh, encouragement to go and do that in the form of of uh, the black market and prohibition. This thing everybody wants. Let's say they can't have it anymore, and now the only way to get it is through illegal means. Yeah. Well, 
believe it or not, folks, prohibition was all due to it was not it was not so much legal, it was moral. You had these husbands drinking away their paychecks and the wives were getting and I'm gonna stop that their husbands were drinking away their booze. So they wrote governors and whatnot and got to Washington and they made this law that alcohol selling and transporting and whatnot was illegal. It was a moral thing. The, there were families that were PO'd that their that the dads slash husbands were drinking away their paycheck. And so organized crime decided to fulfill a need that was being curtailed by the federal government. And I mean, you can sit there and watch, you know, like the untouchables if you want to find a fiction. I mean, Elliot Ness was real. Al Capone was real. It's just the untouchables was the whole fictionalized version of said battle between those two. Right. Okay. So, uh, but so let, let's try to give our listeners an idea of what life was like, you know, for, um, for you know, in the 1920s. Okay. So first of all, uh, there was uh, there was no electricity out in the um, in the in the in the rural areas. Okay, the, one of the big projects that happened during that period was called the Rural Electrification Project. That means that I mean they're literally stringing wire across the country, and it took decades to do it. Uh, so, like, if you were out, uh, so if you went to a farm, you know, out in Kansas someplace. They uh, they probably didn't have a generator at all. You st- you still had candlelight and oil lamps and kerosene lamps yeah. and uh, uh-huh. and and things like that. You know, and they uh, and everything and and if you need everything mechanically ran off your tractor. If you need if you had any kind of a wood shop or metal shop, okay, there it, it basically plugged into a socket inside the motor of your tractor and turned that lathe or whatever you needed or turned that that uh, conveyor that took the 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 bales of uh, feed and hay up into the top of the barn, you know, it was it was all mechanical energy, uh, or it was you know fire. They uh, and 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 they and some had windmills to pump water up into a tank, so they actually had what would be considered modern. Like you didn't have to, you know, you didn't personally have to pump it out of a well. A lot of people pumped out of a well in those days. So yeah. When so the point I'm making is is that when the sun went down in most of America, it was pitch dark, and anything that was supernatural had free reign to do whatever yep. it wanted to do. It was scary out in the dark. And oh, folks, folks, a good now. I think this may be a little later. But if you want a good series, and I think both of you will agree with it, it was on HBO for two seasons. Had to do with the 20s and the supernatural and how it was out in rural areas. Carnival. Yes. Carnival was a very good series. Great character. Oh, I saw that. Yes, yes. But they they actually had electricity. (laughs) Well, well, still, it was... They were going to these little rinky-dink towns out in the southwest, and a lot of them still had the pump water, and yeah. Yeah, now, you know, this this is a R-rated series, so, you know, we want, we want everyone, because this is a family 
friendly show. We yeah, want everyone. If we're making a recommendation. We want everyone to know it is our. We're making. Rated. We're making. Okay, we're making a recommendation to the the parents of the kid. You know, the the elder <laughs> gamers. So the older yeah. gamers. This is an excellent series. Okay, but there were also lot. There is other material that we have that we can use to uh, uh, to talk about what uh, what kinds of, of things uh, what what things you can use okay uh, as far as television series and uh, and books and movies and things like that so uh, Jonathan do you have another example of what they can look at to uh, get an idea of, of what things were like back in the 20s it's it's a little over the top because it is a musical. Imagine the the musical theater actor recommending this, but the the musical Chicago. Okay. Um, it's set in the nineteen nineteen twenties. the The Mummy, the 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 latest uh, Mummy with Brendan Fraser. Was that set in the twenties? I guess it was. Yes. Yeah. The, f- the first we don't yeah. talk about that third mummy movie that just that that's what, like what, oh what no no movie? that's like Highlander two to me just la 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 what third movie yeah yeah this and this takes place before like you know the uh, the the time period of uh, Indiana Jones this was you know so the mummy is a good example uh, uh, there was uh, Charlie Chan if you ever watched any of those movies uh, they were mysteries. But they did. Yep. They they did take place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Tarzan, uh, the original series that was written, uh, was t- took place in that same time period, <clears throat> which also means you know all the ones by Edgar Rice Burroughs basically took place. The Professor Challenger, which which is the Lost World and all that stuff. You know you can get an idea of these. You know what men's men were considered. Okay, and one of my favorite, which is the whole at the Earth's core Pellucidar series, even though it takes place mostly in uh, the Earth's core where time never basically moves, the, the it, it started like in the 1890s. But you know, at one point they said, you know, you're like you're like a hundred years old because <laughs> they've been down there so long. So it actually crosses over, and at one point they actually go and build a dirigible on. Uh, up on the surface, and they fly it with t- bringing Tarzan uh, into the Earth's core. So uh, it, there, you, you get some information about what things were like th- through that series as well. So uh, Captain Blood, uh, which uh, th- that was a movie that came out. Of course, ca- uh, they didn't have pirates in those days, uh, at least not. The, the you know not not the kind of pirates they were thinking about, but um, there was one guy who was a character called Randolph Carter who was supposed to be like uh, someone who uh, wrote also about the supernatural elements that were similar to uh, the whole Cthulian thing, and of course Cthulhu and everything having to do with that all takes H- place H. Lovecraft. in the twenties, yeah. right, right. Um, yeah. uh, folks, folks, basically. Two words here will will fill it in, and I'm not referring to the movie by this name. Pulp fiction. If you get all the old pulp serials, you're going to get a very good thing of the 20s. The Avenger, The Phantom, uh, The Shadow, 
all of that stuff happened well, in the, except the they, 20s. A lot of this took place in the 30s is the problem. 30s. Well, still, the 20s still had a lot of pulp era. Yes. Oh, absolutely. A lot of the pulp fiction. Yeah. yeah. So if you find the right pulp novel, it'll explain that, well, okay, a fictionalized rather glossy view of the 20s, because if you want nitty-gritty, dark, and foreboding, then you're getting into noir. But if you're yeah. looking for more something Bureau 13-ish, definitely go with the pulp side of things. Well, I don't know. I think noir is very Bureau 13-ish, but uh, yeah. Well, it depends on what kind of campaign you're wanting to run, too. Right. I mean, right. Okay, yeah. so uh, now, if you're talking about the cities, okay, that's different. See, because... You know, ever since like the late 1800s, they've been going through an industrial revolution. So cities, uh, like when we talked about the whole uh, steampunk, you know, we talked we talked about what it was like in Victorian England and some of the other places. But I mean, we're talking like factories belching out smoke. I mean, it was hard to breathe in cities. Cities were, you know, they were full of life and they were full of uh, of prospects and, adv and adventure and things like that, but they were also very unhealthy places to live, okay? The water was tainted from the factories. Uh, there were diseases caused by people being compressed in. There were, you know, fires. Uh, there were, you know, you know if, you, if, you, if you went out at night, they, did, they didn't have street lamps on every corner, uh, in every place, you know, sometimes they did. A lot of times they literally would shut the street lamps out at night, okay, after a certain period until dawn. You know, it was, they just would just, you know, there was, the, the, the town fathers would decide that, that we don't need light all night long. We're just going to shut it off because someone was paying for it. It was coming out of taxes and things like that. That yeah. wasn't free. So I'm just saying is that so cities could become these, you know, these really packed in, uh, sweaty uh, places filled with desperate people. Because in every city, there's a layer of desperation. You know, there are people that are, you know, we have our own uh, homeless. Back then, they didn't have welfare. They didn't have hospitals where if you were sick and you had to have immediate care to save your life, you went in there, they'd take care of you. They would just turn you away the door if you didn't have any money. And, and yeah, a lot of folks. A yeah. lot of the stuff that we know today about hospitals and whatnot—that was all post FDR. That was based on the New Deal and all that. So that was 40s on. This is the 20s. Yeah, they there was no law saying that you would be given service and you just dealt with it later. They could just say, "No, you don't have money. We're not treating you." Knowledge of health. And the biological sciences, the, the, the chemical sciences, all those things were going through a revolution. And people had crazy notions about what would work and what wouldn't work, which is one of the reasons why we have, you know, all these weird sciencey kinds of things that are set in this kind of time period. But it was, especially when it came to health, people had crazy notions about healthy things. Okay, um... Bruce, this might be a little earlier than 1920s, but if you want to see a really good example of weird ideas for maintaining your health, and I know both of you know this movie, 
The Road to Wellville with Matthew Broderick and Anthony Hopkins. I was just about to mention that. That's where I was going. Yeah. That movie yep. is just yeah. eye-opening. Oh, no. And, and here's the kicker. Speaking as a Michigan native, Anthony Hopkins played one of the two Kellogg brothers. And, yes, we are talking as in Corn Flake, Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops Kellogg. And he came up with just these radical and often painful and sometimes deadly notions about how to maintain your health. And one of the li- and I can't find this trailer anywhere, but it was funny as hell. Matthew Broderick came in there because he had a health issue, and there's and it's funny. Anthony Hopkins with with the the, the plastic rim glasses and buck teeth. The same <laughs> man who later played Hannibal Lecter, he was looking like that, and. Dr. Kellogg calls out, get this man 15 gallons of yogurt. Matthew Broderick has this horrified look on his face like, I can't eat 15 gallons of yogurt. And Anthony, it's a close-up on Hopkins. Oh, no, my boy. That's not what end it's going in. And I'm, I saw that trailer back in the day. I'm like, oh! That's the type of stuff they would do in the <laughs> 20s, even then, because, yeah. I've, I've, I mean, severe, I've severely... And here's the thing. I've severely limited my yogurt intake since seeing that trailer years ago. Yeah. Well, and because he, you know, he had a successful clinic there, there were all these other people who were even more radical having little shops in the town that was next to it. And you'd go there and they would offer all kinds of crazy things to make you better for cut rate prices. So, you know, Having an having an adventure that involved some strange concoction that was being sold, uh, sold to to a populace to to you know like cure alcoholism or something like that, but but instead it turns them into uh, the crazies as of the movie by George Romero. Why am I remind Why am I reminded of the old West? snake oil salesman oh yeah that's exactly the vibe i'm getting that is exactly what it was i mean but okay but, yeah. But, you know, yeah you go in you go and take this person who is a you know died in the wool alcoholic you give them the the elixir they drink it they swear off alcohol they're no dts they're like a changed person every every as you said all those women that were writing letters to the governor they all buy a copy and start feeding it to their husbands all of a sudden then you know after a certain period of time, suddenly their side effects kick in, and uh, you've got a Bureau 13 adventure. Plenty of things like that, you know. Uh, the uh, the supernatural, uh, right now, most of the adventures that take place uh, in modern day, because of the way it is, at least in my campaigns, always seem to be like some supernatural that's basically been keeping it on the QT, but it's been encroached on and forced out of its habitat and now the bureau has to rescue it and relocate it before the humans destroy it for its own good or or what i've done they just bring in government forces to lock the area down as in okay you get this area you get and i did this in the early days of my current saturday night bureau 13 modern day campaign with the jersey devil okay what we will do we will lock down this area no one's in and out you you get this area. If you don't leave this area and you can hunt all you want in this area, nobody will get in here. We guarantee it. We will lock it down where, 
I mean, we'll put up electrified fence and whatnot and put big signs saying, keep out government territory. And so, yeah, you, you, you can do that too for these games. Right. Or, or they would be time slips or there would be like a pocket dimension that they were coming out of. Okay. So, you know, that's how, you know, how, Unless they're re they're really intelligent monsters, it's, you know that's how most Bureau Thirteen adventures go in modern day. In the twenties, because of these vast areas of of not wilderness but rural, okay, with no light, the supernatural could live coexist very closely with uh, in the you know with humans in the mountains, and they might not they might know about each other, they might not know about each other. People tended, you know, the, the information didn't get out from these areas uh, very easily. Oh, Bruce, I, I'm seeing another thing that would be would have been really popular in the 20s with a Bureau 13 game. You couldn't turn and spit without it. And, of course, you know, you had the spit tune, the ding, you know, kitchen witches in every damn rural town. You got some old lady with the wrong components putting together something, they end up releasing a demon or a dimensional portal because they decide, oh, we need something to harvest. We've had a bad harvest the past three or four years and we need rain and out comes something out of the river. You know, they open a plane to the elemental plane of water and here comes this, you know, massive, you know, 40 foot long gar pike in the lake or something. I see a lot of kitchen witch crap going on here with and like grandma, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, granny on the Beverly Hillbillies. A lot of times, those you know, those those el uh, elder women were were the doctors. They didn't have a town doctor. As soon as you mentioned granny, I almost spit on my wine just now. Mm. Damn it, Bruce! <laughs> <laughs> because you know the yearly tonic. <clears throat> yeah, I mean that thing. You know that thing made you know Formula One race cars. You know win the world, uh, you know win the not the World Series, the uh, the the Indy Indianapolis five hundred or whatever. Okay, yeah. or it let uh, you know it let it let her uh, her men folk and and her women folk pick up whole cars and carry them around. Okay, so if you just take what the stuff that Granny was able to make. Her yearly tonic. They, uh, as a matter of fact, I think at one point didn't they have a one adventure where the Nassau came sniffing around trying to see if it could be a substitute for rocket fuel. Maybe. Um, Fur did bring up Furball seventy seven for my girlfriend. Brought up something about uh, more sources for the twenties and brought one word: Gatsby. The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. That would be another yeah. good example. Yeah, yeah. She, I just noticed it now. I went back to the comments and noticed she posted about that. Sorry, honey. We got wrapped up in the discussion. Yeah, that's that's one of our, uh, you know, uh, that's one of the, the books that take place. Also, another book, I think, also taking place, which is a little bit more toward the Bureau 13-ish, especially the ending, is uh, Day of the Locust by, I don't know who the writer was, but... It's all. It's about you know the crazy world of Hollywood and some of the weird things that happen. Uh, yeah. Oh, I can imagine all sorts of stuff of Hollywood in the twenties. Oh God, there was a murder in the twenties that was really popular. I think Flower, the Black Dahlia murders. That's it. You know, there was a lot uh, of weird crap going on in the twenties in Hollywood. 
and you know that there's some actress who wants to get a role and she's going to do something, some love potion or something, and it's going to go sideways and I'll, I'll, I'll try to clean this up, <clears throat> breasts up, and the Bureau's got to be called in because there's now something going on, you know, in the city, you know, in Hollywood, you know, the city of dreams, you know. I could see that happening. But remember, this is also uh, only a few years after uh, the uh, World War I. And there are a lot of soldiers came back from the war, some of them in good condition, some of them not so good condition. Just think about how many people might have made those seven-year deals with the devil in order to survive. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Well, about the second year into the 20s, those deals come due. Yeah. Uh, something else that, and this ties into current events here, as I said, folks, we are, yes, this is the season 12 opener. It will be released near October 20th. We are recording this. October 25th. Week of September. Yes, but we are recording this in, a month early, so we can get it on on time. Uh, coronavirus, we're still neck high in it. Um, we're still recovering in the 20s, like starting... It was only two years since the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, where, what was it that John Oliver of last week tonight, 195,000 Americans died from that Spanish flu epidemic just two years before. So between us coming out of the war in 1918 and then the Spanish flu epidemic, you had a lot of people who... They got senses of their own mortality watching. You had people coming back from the war and people here, you know, in the States dealing with the flu. We were still, back then, still a very spiritual people. So we wanted to deal with things concerning life after death. And we wanted to deal with the fact that, okay, you know, life was still pretty... Remember, we didn't have the medical technology now where... The average, uh, what I think the average, the average lifespan of an American is what mid to late seventies, and of course we have people living up to like hundred. You mean now it's 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 supposed to be the eighties? Yeah, now, yeah. now, okay. Back yeah. then, you're lucky to get past sixty-five, which is why retirement age was sixty-five, because usually you retired and died. Yeah, um, but. Something that came up as far as possibly due to the after effects of World War One and just everything that people saw. And of course, you had the final battle of World War One. I, I believe it was Christmas 1918, where all of a sudden there was a massive flash in the sky that no one knew what it was from. It wasn't from artillery. It wasn't. It just there was this white light in the middle of the night, and it stopped the battle. And that's what caused the armistice for World War One. So between that and just generally the war and the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, going into the 20s, a lot of people were obsessed with life after death. And that, from what I see here, is when the Ouija board, or Ouija board, depending on how you pronounce it, came into being. So you had a lot of mysticism there. So you had people dealing with this thing. And, and Bruce and Jonathan, I know you've seen the meme, it's like, because the, the 
you know, you can buy a Ouija board, you know, from Parker Brothers, get get it at, you know, Myers or whatever store. And yeah. what is it? Ages six to eight. And it says <laughs> you gotta be you gotta be twenty one to drink, but at age six to eight is summon a demon on a Ouija board. Yeah. So so that Ouija board, and I'm gonna use the Ouija board. That's how I you know what I'm talking about. And so you have the Ouija board, Ouija board, and people are going to be doing stuff. And oh, look! I again summoning a demon or bringing about a curse. But that wasn't what they were trying to do. They were trying to reach, you know, dead relatives. Yeah, seance, seance type stuff. Yeah, spiritualism was at its height in the twenties. It's basically it reached its height and then fell away after that. But in the twenties. You know, that was the common thing to do at a party was to get out that Ouija board or everybody get in a circle and touch fingers and have somebody have somebody uh, summon the spirit of uh, somebody's relative. Yeah, if you all thought that the Victorians were into spiritualism, no, the 20s got really into it. They, yeah. And, and it just, uh, that was the time of Harry Houdini, who... Yeah, he was an escape artist, but also he was a, um, I'm sure probably a personal hero of uh, our former fellow podcaster Blix, a skeptic. He would debunk people trying to be mystics and whatnot. And so I would not, Bruce, I would not be surprised if Houdini, if Rich wrote Houdini in as a um, bureau agent. Yeah. Well, one of the big problems for the Bureau back in the 20s is that there were, because of these new technologies and, and techniques that had been developed uh, or had been learned from the, the Chinese who'd come over and, and other things, uh, to, these techniques to uh, make the supernatural seem real, to especially to people who were uneducated, the bureau would be running into into so many, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, so many fake supernatural instances because yeah. people were like, "Yes, there is a strange creature that's marauding on our property," you know, uh, as as you know, as a lead in to like a party or something like that, and then. You know, and maybe there is one, or maybe there isn't, or maybe somebody decides to use uh, it as an opportunity to kill somebody and blame it on the creature or spirits or whatever. And the bureau is going to have to is going to try to investigate some of these things, and a lot of times it's going to turn out it is all trickery, and somebody was basically using it as a means to either get rich or you know uh, or get paid or to yeah. gain advantage over somebody. I mean, it's uh, a Scooby-Doo situation, a very Scooby-Doo situation. And, you know, and, it, <laughs> uh, and I'm saying the Bureau would be running into this as a really a really big problem because of the fact that there was so, it, it, it had become easy to fake it. OK, yeah. what before would have been almost impossible to do now was becoming especially the richer you were. The, the easier it was to fake it because you could afford things like half-silvered uh, mirrors where you could make the appearance of something, you know, behind it. Or, uh, you know, and lights glowing in places they shouldn't be and motorized things. Now, one little thing I want to talk about before we go any further is we want, I want to talk about electricity. 
Electricity, yes, we, I mean, I mentioned the electrification project. Electricity in homes was a big deal in the cities, okay? The problem was, is, is that it wasn't like how it is today. There were no standards, okay? A lot of times, one electrical company in one part of town had different voltages, amperages, and everything else than another oh, part. Oh, that's mm. not good. Okay. They, the wires were not insulated. They literally were going from one, uh, uh, one ceramic connector to another, strung like tinsel through your house. Some of them even, they, they had, uh, uh, they had a, a tablecloth that had wires inside of it, and you would take devices and plug them, push them into the, the fabric of the tablecloth to make the electrical connection to turn a lamp on. No, 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 no. I'm already seeing that going wrong about 90 different damn ways. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and, every, uh, and, uh, and, and hair dryers and electric irons and everything you can imagine. I mean, people were dropping like flies. Okay, this is the crap that my grandmother didn't tell me about. Well, granted, she was born in 28, but still... This is not the stuff that Grandma told me, and sadly she passed away a few weeks ago, so I can't exactly go back and, you know, talk to her about this. But, yeah, wow. And when they did start to wrap them, did you think they wrapped them in something like rubber? No. No. They wrapped them in cloth. And what oh, happens dear. when you pull a lot of electricity through a wire? Gets hot oh, real quick. Good job. <laughs> Sets on fire. Place burns down. Okay, that... And, and you can tell how old, okay, one of the prime, um, and I'll try to make this quick, origin of the Joker, the, 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 the wife of the guy doing the Red Hood, his wife died because a baby bottle warmer shorted out because, and again, it's due to this bad wiring in the buildings in the, you know, in the 20s and 30s when Batman was originally created. So yeah, I'm I'm seeing that now, but I didn't realize just how damn bad it was. Apparently, yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, and you know they and 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 here's another thing: they didn't have circuit breakers, they didn't have fuses. It was all fuses. They didn't have fuses even back then. Well, no, fuses would have been in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. So, you know, once you made a bad, once you made a short. It just kept going until somebody swatted it apart with a stick or something, okay? And it, and, uh, and which is one of the, the one few life-saving advantages of uh, alternating current. Alternating current, you can drop the wire. If it's direct current, you grab the wire, you can't let go. Yeah. No, because my old place... It is now your best friend yeah, unto death. My, my old place and first current place... Those houses were built very late 30s, early 40s. I remember having to replace fuses in my old place. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine. And I mean, now, hell, I got the circuit breaker for my apartments in my walk-in closet wall. But I can't imagine a place with either with electricity, but without either fuses or circuit breakers. Or even any standards for the quality of the wire. Oh, man. Yeah. But I mean, but what but what you got from electricity was so amazing 
that most people considered it worth it. You know, if, if a few people's houses went up and uh, on fire, what's the big deal? But but it also it, it caused a lot of people to come up with crazy ideas about what to do with electricity. Things like stimulating parts of your body that uh, don't work so well anymore. That happened. Uh, women who couldn't conceive babies. Well, about a little electrostimulation. You know, things like that happen in medical centers. I mean, the, 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 if you see the movie uh, Road to Wellville, there's a, they, they, they have them sitting in copper baths with electricity going through their uh, pelvises. Well, no, they even did that in, in the first Sherlock Holmes movie with Lord Blackwell's father, and he was there in a copper tub, and they did something to electrify the tub, and it made the water boil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and people are like, I feel much better. <laughs> it's like, and maybe they did. But, you know, the long-term effects are uh, your heart gets damaged. Uh, and uh, But, you know, when people... When people weren't gonna, you know, weren't living very long, anyways, maybe that wasn't, maybe they didn't notice so much. Okay, so let's move on to the gear, because we're running out of time here. Uh, here's uh, the gear of the 1920s. No, the, probably the best weapon was the Tommy gun, Thompson submachine gun. Ah, uh, yes. Fa you know, famously yeah. used by various wise guys. Uh, and and boot, uh, uh, let's say uh, bootleggers and such. Okay, it literally was carried uh, in a, a a violin or viola case, but they were not carried in the movies where they reached in, they pull it out, and it's fully assembled. No, they had to take it out and assemble it. <laughs> that that big uh, uh, circular thing of uh, that hundred that hundred round drum. Yeah, you had to you know like yeah. you had the gun click and then da, 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 you know. Yeah, you had to connect that to it. But yeah, they did carry it around, and people wouldn't think twice about a group of musicians traveling about with their cases. So and that meant the bureau probably had a lot of times where they would check into a uh, hotel as people that were on their way to some big city or another uh, on uh, driving in their car uh, and they were check they were a musical group and they were they would check in with their musical instruments but they were actually carrying a lot of gear that wasn't that because you know even back then you know carrying open carry of of, of pistols and things like that, you know, they, they most towns had a sheriff or somebody like that, and it'd take a dim view of you and run you out of town and maybe shoot you for your own good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if, if the judge doesn't bring you up on charges, much like today, uh, <laughs> you know, the police can do whatever they want for the good of all. You know, and the yeah. town fathers are usually going to close ranks around your your peace officers. So as the bureau, you had to watch your Q, P's and Q's. Especially if you were in the company of women, playing. You know, I, uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't play women. You know, in in the 1920s, but you had to be circumspect. You had, you know, you you had to have rooms separate. You know, matter of yes. fact, you probably had to. You were probably completely separate rooming houses. One for women, one for guys. So, you know, because, of course, if you're a traveling band, you might have a female singer, but she's not going to be staying in the same hotel 
No, 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 no. No, there, there's, uh, possibly she would be staying over at the pa- the Parsons' house, you know, because you know, because he, he would probably want to talk. Yes, in polite society, women did not do such things. That's right. Yeah. Well, and of course, a woman <laughs> who traveled with a bunch of men to some and, and, and sang yeah. and sang in speakeasies and such were already just one step above ladies of the evening. So you know. Jonathan, you were laughing, but this secretly was never do that voice again. Right, <laughs> right. Okay, so anyways, the Tommy No, guy, it's like, I, what, I, the when Tommy did he guy, move down here to Alabama? Probably the number one favorite weapon of the Bureau. It's also very advantageous because you could have different, you know, uh, different drums of various types of rounds. You have your silver Ooh, rounds. Oh, yes. You could have your cold iron rounds and stuff like that, or you could even mix them. Yeah, and I says, I got another 20 rounds. Why do you keep shooting the thing? You ain't doing no good. Well, I another 20 rounds, and I'll actually get into the things that work. Just wait. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, we hit the silver. Yeah. One of the things, because uh, uh, the uh, World War One was so terrible with the use of gas and poison gas. Protect- Mustard gas, yeah. Right. Protective gas gear was now available. The Bureau... People could use gas themselves against the supernatural, and they could have protected gear that would protect them. Wasn't there a guy in like Haunts or Hell Night that was like the gas man? He had the mask and he had gas guns and all that. Right. He was like a bureau bad. Right. Yeah, okay. Then. Right, but yeah. I'm saying this was something that had never been available before. Now was available in the 1920s, and a lot of the supernatural, you know, they they have a kind of a, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're ecological. You know, they may have had they may have had defenses of really tough defenses against, you know, uh, guns or some other things. But a lot of times, gas attacks they might not have any protection against mustard gas. So you so, yeah. so against your really tough monsters. Let me put it this way: if I'm up against a T Rex, all right, I want to throw some mustard gas at it. <laughs> okay. I don't want to try to take it down with a rifle, even if I've got a a, a, a Browning Bess. It's, you get one shot, and then it takes you a minute to reload that guy. Okay. Speaking of um, of, of automatic weapons, the Vickers Berthier light machine gun was a uh, was a very reliable weapon, but it was only accepted into service in a handful of countries, notably India, because it was che- it was easy to repair and it was cheap to make. Oh God, I remember this. My one former gamer, uh, Carrie's boyfriend Matt, he was a like a tech freak and a gun freak. I remember this one. India was the only country that bought this. Right. I remember this. Yeah. Well, yeah. The British came out with their own version, something better, but it but it took them another ten years. Okay, this was a gun that was available, all right? And it was a relatively crappy gun, so they gave it to the Indians for, yeah, let them use it. Which means you could probably get your hands on it, you know, without too much much trouble, okay? Uh, And and it it had the advantage that it was, you know, I mean, it was a fully, a full military weapon. A, A submachine gun is nice, but it doesn't have the penetration power of a full light machine gun. So you had that available. Now, another thing that was probably a boon to the Bureau agents was the British Army introduced the first factory-built Willie P. grenades in 1916. White phosphorus! In 1916, which means they are available in the 20s. 
Now, this isn't what most people think. This was literally a bottle made of glass with stuff inside of it. And you hurled it, it broke, and things went burst into flames. Hi, that's a Molotov cocktail. A super Molotov cocktail. Okay, one on crack. Okay, yeah, got it. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. It, it bursts into flames upon getting into air. You don't have to light it up ahead of time. You know, you don't have to light a fuse like you do with a Molotov. Yeah, mixture similar to, okay, Fenian fire plus some latex. Right. Yeah. But because it was made by the Brits, it was factory made. You had quality control. You had, Ooh. they were being shipped in like containers, you know, like boxes and stuff. So you could actually get something that you could, tr you could trust a little bit. I don't know if you've ever read Nights at the Dinner Table, but when they were doing their Call of Cthulhu stuff, one of the characters was always taking grenades and crotching them. In other words, he was sticking them in his crotch to carry in his underwear so he could pull them out and use them later. The grenades that were available in those days, I would not be willing to do that. It's still crazy to do that with Willie Pete, but at least it had some level of manufacturing. And also, remember, remember the mm. Bureau and MI-13, the farm, had basically full exchange, so you know that the Bureau would get a regular supply of those from the farm. Right. Yep. Yeah. So. So that was a, a, a. So those those are the things. One of the. Uh, I, I know Jonathan, you don't know any of this stuff because you haven't read all the things like the lost files and things like that. But the invention of the Krillian detector was done in the 1920s. Oh, in Russia, I yes. That actually, yeah. In Russia, yeah. Yeah, it had a different name. It had a completely different name, but it was the very first Krillian detector. It was the size of a cast iron stove. Oh, jeez. Which meant that you couldn't use you couldn't use it like they do it today. But what you could do is you could take it, put it into a place where you thought something supernatural was going on, turn it on, and find out if something actually was. This was probably the the big litmus test that they used in a lot of these hauntings and things like that to separate out the fakes from the real. So, you know, the bureau had that. You, you know, they they you won't find that in your call Cthulhu. Uh, of course, like I said, um, electrification meant that you actually had a, the possibility of using electricity as a weapon. You know, you're fighting a werewolf in somebody's house because that that person, the moon just came out, they just turned. You can actually reach over, grab a cord, rip a cord out of a lamp and stick those things into the werewolf. And there's no, especially if it's DC, uh, there's no circuit breaker. That thing is going to send as much amperage as it possibly can through that wolf and hold him still long enough for you to lop his head off. So electricity was a thing that they could use against a lot of different supernatural. Uh, let's see what else we got. Uh, it was you know it was novel and therefore all novel attacks are also effect generally tend to be effective against the supernatural. 
uh, because of the Industrial Revolution, strong chemicals like really strong acids, really strong bases were now available at chemistry storehouses. And what happens when you put those together, Trav? Acids and bases. Strong acids and strong bases. Okay, you're asking the person who, if I was lucky on a good day, I got a C in chemistry. You're How about you, Jonathan? Do you sir. know? Big bada boom. Well, if you're talking about strong acids and strong, but yeah, big bada boom. They could explode. They also produce tons of heat. A lot of heat. And so, yeah. both of them are caustic. Yeah. They're getting everywhere. Okay, see? Okay, see that from my automotive aftermarket experience with battery acid? Okay, that I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was just saying, if you threw both of them on a creature, not only could would it be burning, chemically burned for both types, but they might combine together to produce enough heat to set it on fire. So lots, you know, of course, very dangerous. To, again, protective clothing is important if you're going to start doing this. Big rubber gloves, face masks, you know. One of the things that I've never seen anybody do, but it was a strong possibility, was if you had the ability, if you had your own generator, okay, and you could put it onto a truck, you could mount carbon arc projectors. These things produce blinding white light. They were used to provide light in theaters. So like, um, oh God, what's the term from... Hollywood, a, like a Klieg light? I don't know. Uh, what it is is it's basically two carbon rods that are put real close to each other and electricity jumps between them and it produces a brilliant white light. And they put a, a, a reflector behind it and it basically shines the light forward. Back, you know, you could illuminate a large area with this, okay? The Bureau could actually, you know bring daylight into darkness as in in the rural areas, especially where the supernatural thinks it's got the advantage. It was, it's one of their secret weapons that they could do. Also, a lot of the supernatural being nocturnal are repelled by that kind of light. Yeah. So it can really turn the tide. They turn they stop attacking people. They turn, they try to flee, you fill them full of whatever bullets you have, whatever else you have. It's it's a, it's a big, massive area of attack effect that could be done safely for your agents. It just means you have to have the gear to do it, and the Bureau had the money and the resources to build that kind of gear. So what I could see would be like, you know, if you ever saw Mystery Men, that giant uh, war tank vehicle they had, the Herkimer, yes, oh, the yeah. Herkimer battle wagon, yes. Put a you know, put a giant uh, generator in that, big projectors on it, and go to town. You know, that would be your assault vehicle. <laughs> you know, in, especially at night. Okay. I, I I do have to say one thing now that I'm saying. See, remember that movie, the old lady, junk it, junk yeah. it, just yeah. junk it, yes, <laughs> junk it. Yeah, you're on my last nerve, old lady. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. Uh, however, now I got to now, now I got to crank out the VHS machine and watch that movie right. again. Thanks now a lot. The, Anyways, I have it on Blu-ray. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I live in the 21st century. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, right, hush up, you old guys. I have Netflix. Unfortunately, armor, <laughs> personal armor, was not available. Oh no! Bulletproof vests were not a thing back in the twenties. I remember reading this. They didn't even have flak vests until World War II. Okay, I, well, yeah. uh, I do remember. Okay, D twenty pass the very thin book that they had for D twenty modern. Oh, you want to adventure from Victorian to World War II? They had something. And I, and I will use the modern nomenclature. It was bulky AF. Yeah, you could wear a bulletproof vest, but you might as well have been walking around with battleship plate on you because you could barely move. Yeah, bullets bounce off, but... Yeah. Well, it's, it's like that, that, that you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, or one of those ones with uh, Clint Eastwood. Where he put the, the piece of armor, the boilerplate from the stove under his poncho. Yeah. yeah, the only way to kill me is to shoot me in the heart, <laughs> which is where the plate yeah, was. Yeah, Marty McFly did the same thing, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. I'm just saying, but, but any kind of body armor, you know, helmets, you know, they... They, they they did they didn't barely put helmets on football players. They didn't think that was a problem. Leather helmets, yeah, at best, leather helmets. They look they look yeah. like aviator aviator caps. They, they they put they put shoulder pads and things like that on the on the on the players, but they never really worried about the head. <laughs> so, I'm just saying is that you know you you don't have that kind of protection. So you know uh, sm even small weapon fire. Arrows, things like that, even spears could be very deadly in the 20s. Yeah. However, there was one kind of armor that was not easily available, but it was actually available, and that was Asian, uh, uh, Asian silk armor. Uh, there was a technique of gluing uh, glass you know, in between layers of silk that actually provided effective protection against arrows and even even guns. I have recently bought a weighted blanket. Now, for those of you who don't know what this is, it it you know it's a blanket and it's sewn up, and you know we like having the things close around us. There are little glass balls sewn all throughout in between the two layers of this blanket. So I'm getting the whole silk and glass armor thing here. Granted, it was probably heavy, because I'm going to tell you something right now, gentlemen. Yeah, that blanket is wonderful. I could snuggle up in it, and I'm all comfortable, and, you know, you know, it's the old thing, snug as the book in a rug. But it's heavy. So I can imagine this, China, and even with Chinese silk, still with the glass woven in, you're not moving around a lot. You're you're giving up mobility for protection. I'm already sensing this just because of the weighted blanket I have in my bedroom, not more than you know ten feet away. So if this is if this was a thing back in the twenties and all, as you put, albeit rare, again you're sacrificing mobility for protection. Just just put that out there. 
based on what I know of this blanket. I don't know how heavy the uh, silk armor was, but I mean, it was used on the battlefield. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, maybe they were wearing, a pro maybe it was like wearing, uh, you know, the heavy armor that the, uh, the knights wore, but you know, they've proven that, that, that even that stuff you could, you could actually swim in. That you could, that it's not as disabling as. Wow. Okay. Yeah. They, they, I mean that people can actually, the heavy armor that people always thought if you fall off, you're going to lay there like a turtle with your legs and someone's going to come over and kill you. That wasn't true. So it's, you know, you got, you got used to it. You got, you know, you, you learned how to, to work with the armor and be effective. And, and I've actually seen videos on YouTube where people were, were literally swimming with, you know, uh, in, um, in full plate. Now, you know, they were kind of, a lot of it was like falling to the bottom and bouncing back up to the surface, you know, and, and making big overhand strokes, you know, like over the shoulder strokes, but they were doing it. And um, getting knocked down to water was not a death sentence. You just climb yourself back up. So uh, I'm just saying is that it's probably not as heavy as we think it is. The last item that I have on my list is night goggles. A lot of people don't know what these are. Uh, these are essentially really big binoculars. They have really big lenses on the front end down to basically the small, normal binocular eyepieces on the other end. And the idea is to, con is to concentrate, collect a lot of light and concentrate it down so you can actually see stuff in near in low light conditions, like at night. So if you're a bureau agent and you're out there in the in the rural areas, and all you have is is starlight or preferably even some moonlight, it might be too dark for everybody around you to see what's going on a hundred or even two hundred feet away. But with night binoculars night goggles or night glasses, they had a lot of different names, uh, you actually could see clearly and, and, they, would and they would still magnify um, and you'd be able to see a lot of the things that might be hiding you know, in plain sight because they think they're protected by the darkness. It, again, it's one of those secret techniques that the Bureau could use because they had access to this kind of high technology that your average farmer with his torch I mean, can you imagine running around with a torch looking for the supernatural? I mean, it's going to totally destroy your night vision. <laughs> okay, you know, and you're running around with this with a shotgun. It feels right if you're hunting Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're in a group of 100 <laughs> people, it also feels good. <laughs> so, but I'm just saying is that while they're running around, of course, the supernatural, the monsters are just circling them. They never even see them. But with your night binoculars, you see that happening. You set up your own ambush points, and then when the supernatural comes by, you open up on them, or you use area of effect uh, on them, or whatever you decide to use, and you become more. You can be effective as an agent. So. I mean, there's lots more stuff. I, I, this is all I was able to find in, in the amount of time I had to do this research. We could talk about this probably for hours, but we're out of time. So I want to thank uh, both my hosts for being here for our, uh, our, be uh, our beginning new episode. 
for season 12. Yes. And hold on a second here. If, if I can actually pull this up. This is going to be episode 539. <laughs> uh, and probably five, 540. <laughs> okay, well, five, 539 will be the, op- the season 12 opener. 540 will be Bureau 13 in the 20s, yeah. So uh, I want to thank all of our listeners who, uh, who listen to us. We hope that this has given you the, the, a, a good enough reason to try to run an adventure in the 20s. Maybe try to get across to your players how weird and outre it, you know, it was in those days in comparison to modern day. Of course, you know, we always talk about how the people of the 1900s couldn't possibly conceive of what life was like, you know, in, uh, in, in the 21st century. And, and I'm like, you know, my son doesn't know what it's like not to have a computer. I didn't know what it was like not to have television. Okay, I mean, every you know, every generation basically is living in an alien world. Yeah, we all see the world that we knew disappear. Yep. So uh, believe me, if you if you were to time travel or if you were to play this, a good GM will really do their very best to bring the outre nature of that that time period back to you know. To people, especially, uh, we won't even talk about the cost of things. Where five cents, you know, got you a meal. A quarter would pay for your uh, uh, for your night stay at at at, at, at an inn. You know? <laughs> crazy, crazy money things like that. You know, yeah. Where people were, where if someone got if someone earned five dollars a month, they considered that to be good wages. Yes. Right. So, okay. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for being with us, and we'll have more for everybody next week. So until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license, no commercial reproduction, and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.